when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, we're talking to Prashant Chandrasekhar, CEO of Stack Overflow. Now, if you don't know, Stack Overflow is a major part of the modern software development landscape. It's not a tool, though. It's a forum. It's where developers come together, ask questions, and get answers about how to build software, including actual code they can use in their own projects. It's basically a huge question and answer site. More than 100 million people visit Stack Overflow every single month. The company also sells Stack Overflow as an internal forum tool that big companies can use for their own teams. Microsoft, Google, Logitech, you name it, they're using Stack Overflow to coordinate conversations between their engineers. What all this means is that Stack Overflow is a highly specialized kind of social network with a really unique business model. So I wanted to talk to Prashant about how it works, how the company makes money, and how he's growing such a specialized user base while still being welcoming to new users. After all, Stack Overflow has a long reputation of elitism. Prashant himself is a developer, and he told me his own first experience on Stack Overflow was a negative one. He took over as CEO about three years ago after a pretty serious moderation controversy that saw several longtime Stack Overflow moderators quit. Since then, it seems like he stabilized things. We talked a lot about how he measures success on a site that depends on the community being happy and contributing, and why people even participate and moderate on a site like Stack Overflow for free. On top of all of that, Stack Overflow was acquired in June 2021 by Process, a big company that also owns a huge stake in the giant Chinese company Tencent. I want us to know why Prashanth made the decision to sell, how he made it. And what happens next for a tool that so many people depend on to build all the software around us every day? A couple quick notes before we start. We say SaaS a lot. That's S-A-A-S, or software as a service, which is paying a recurring fee to use a software tool. We also talk about Section 230. That's the law that says internet sites are not liable for what their users post on them. Okay, Prashanth Chandrasekhar, CEO of Stack Overflow. Here we go.
Rashan Chandrasekhar, you are the CEO of Stack Overflow. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you, Nuleth. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. There's a lot to talk about. Stack Overflow is very important to a lot of people in the Decoder audience. So we have some questions. I have the usual Decoder stuff. I've got some questions from some engineers I know. A uh, lot to get into. Let's start with the basics, though, for people who might not know how important Stack Overflow is. What is Stack Overflow? How does it work? Stack Overflow is the world's largest software developer and technologist community. We serve close to 100 million monthly visitors from all around the world, which makes us uh, one of the most popular websites in the world. I believe by traffic, we're, I think, at the top 50 of all websites in the, in, in the world, which is, uh, you know, obviously a, a great honor. And the reason why it's so popular is that it's got about 50 million questions and answers on every possible technology topic, everything from programming languages like Python to scripting languages like JavaScript to cloud technologies like AWS and so on. And all of that information has been accessed 50 billion times since our inception back in 2008. That is our public community, our platform. Of course, that is uh, free and available to everybody around the world. And that's how people build software applications these days. Any app that's on your phone, as an example, I'm sure Stack Overflow was leveraged by developers to build those. On top of that, uh, we have obviously a SaaS business, uh, which is a private version of Stack Overflow that companies use internally to share knowledge and collaborate. And obviously, as a function of us being a very popular website, we also have a thriving ads business. So that's effectively us in a nutshell. Just to back that out, in the most abstract sense, Stack Overflow is a very specific and very focused kind of internet forum. And then you sell the forum software to companies so they can have their own internal version of that forum, and then you put ads on that forum. Yeah, so the, and the internal version of Stack Overflow, and you know, we like to think of ourselves as more than a forum because we, this is more of a knowledge base. It's a, it originally started as a Q&A platform, but has now all sorts of other form factors, long, longer form content like articles, et cetera, which is why I don't think we use the, that term particularly. But Stack Overflow for Teams, which is our SaaS product, is leveraged by you know over 15,000 organizations around the world at very large scale, like Microsoft, as an example, has 100,000 employees on our SaaS business or SaaS product, where various employees across the company are collaborating and sharing knowledge using the exact same format that you know those folks have been using for literally over a decade, right? So there's, uh, there's very high familiarity but the problem of sharing knowledge within companies has you know, long been unsolved because you know, the information is just floating around in wikis and so on, and it's often out of date. And so really with Stack Overflow for Teams, uh, you have this, uh, this format that's sort of almost like a self-driving mechanism with upvotes and downvotes and badges, et cetera, which really allows you to recognize your subject matter experts, uh, to prompt users to update information, keep content health really high, and reuse the knowledge within your company. And that is all of that is the SaaS uh, Stack Overflow for Teams. And on our public platform, we have a series of advertising-focused products, uh, as I referenced previously. Is the SaaS business the main revenue driver, or is the ads business the main revenue driver? It is. The SaaS business has now become the primary revenue driver of the company. Uh, in fact, when I joined the company as the CEO back in 2019, that wasn't the case. It was very early in its inception, folks that approached me uh, indicated that it was great product market fit. There seems to be a real interest from large companies that want to sort of leverage this capability, but it was a lot more focused on things like advertising and even talent job listings back when I joined the company. Uh, but over the past three years, uh, we have uh, significantly transformed the company to very specifically focus on building out a high growth SaaS business, 
all the components that you need in a SaaS business, you know, all the product-led motions, the, uh, you know, customer success organizations, the, you know, sales development functions, and of course, having go-to-market resources join us from very many popular companies, SaaS companies from all around the world. So I think we built a great leadership team and also a great uh, team of really great builders who want to build on this a great opportunity as we serve technologists and, uh, and developers. Can I ask you a question I've always wanted to ask yeah. the CEO of a SaaS business? You sell your software to Microsoft on like a per seat basis. And then I don't know if you use Microsoft Teams, but I imagine you use Microsoft Teams or Microsoft software. That's also a SaaS business. They sell it back to you on a per seat basis. Does it ever just even out? Does that money all just go in a circle where you license them Stack Overflow on a per seat basis and they sell you Microsoft Teams on a per seat basis and that's just net zero? Because it feels like a lot of the money in SaaS just goes in a circle. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I would say you know, what's interesting about our business is that the problem that we're solving is well beyond just the SaaS industry, right? Mm-hmm. So that's SaaS within no, the- No, but with Microsoft mm-hmm. specifically, does mm-hmm. it even out? Um, so we have a very, you know, very big relationship with Microsoft, a very deep one, yeah. because we are one of their largest, if not the largest .NET implementation. Entire Stack Overflow is built on the .NET stack. So they've been working with them for a long time. We are on the Azure platform, as an example. Uh, we leverage Microsoft Teams for our customers. Uh, all, you know, most of our customers use either Microsoft Teams or Slack to integrate with Stack Overflow for Teams. Yeah. And of course, they are customers of ours in the context of Stack Overflow for Teams, and you know, also they advertise heavily on our, on our platform and so on. So on a net basis, I'm not sure if it's you know, dollar in, dollar out, or is it exactly the same <laughs> uh, number and sort of who's got you know, the better deal, quote unquote, on that. But generally speaking, though, Nile, I think you know, if you think about our largest verticals, and I mentioned earlier, we have 15,000 organizations on our SaaS business. A large chunk of that, you know, have to do with financial services companies. A large chunk of that, obviously, there are technology companies in there, but not every company is a SaaS business, right? These are companies looking to transform, solve some really big challenges about, you know, hiring and reskilling and onboarding technologists about how do they drive these large transformations within their companies like cloud transformations or data transformations. And then, of course, they're trying to do all of this in a distributed work environment all around the world uh, with uh, remote and hybrid being sort of the new uh, normal. So... Those are the problems that we're solving. In fact, I would say SaaS companies, you know, almost I would say they're not they're not the majority of our customers, right? Yeah. Because they, those folks are sort of a little bit more further down the line of adopting, you know, the latest of uh, the tech stack anyways. Yeah, I was just wondering, especially with SaaS businesses that require other SaaS businesses to operate, it feels like we're just at like a net zero cost all the time. But as, especially as the whole world goes to SaaS. So I, every time I get a SaaS, yeah, I'm dying to ask this question. Yeah, I would also um, just quickly say that I think there's, there's probably a core set of tools that, you know, every company needs to just keep their business running, you know, and, and operational and high scale and so on. So we evaluate that like literally every year we look at, you know, what do we have inside our company? What do we need? And we always talk about having, you know, being very thoughtful about costs and so on. But it, there is a sort of a default next generation tech stack that is formed, right? Yeah. You, you, can, you can, I talk about this all the time. You have cloud platform, you have CICD tooling, you have collaboration, like, you know, this conversation is a real-time synchronous uh, conversation, but you also have asynchronous tools like Stack Overflow for Teams, and then you have design tools and so on and so forth. But there's a very specific number, you know, there are probably thousands of SaaS companies, but we probably use, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 tools very heavily, you know, within, across our functions. So that's a very small subset of the ecosystem. Let's talk about Stack Overflow, the company, and then I want to talk about where you're going and how you might grow it. Stack Overflow is a really interesting company, right? It has these deep internet community roots 
It was started effectively by the community of its two founders. Then it took on investment. It grew. Last year, the whole company was acquired by Process. It's another giant company. You've only been the CEO since 2019, which I guess is not only. It's three <laughs> years now. But uh, you're reasonably new in the long journey of Stack Overflow. What kind of company is Stack Overflow now? What kind of company did you join and what, what have you been trying to make it? Yeah, and I, I think when I joined the company, the company had this amazing community and public platform that it was primarily known for. And it had, I would say, a series of products that had gotten it to where it was in 2019, uh, namely the talent job listings product, the ads business, which is you know obvious because we are a popular website. And then of course, a very nascent early uh, SaaS business with Stack Overflow for Teams. So back then, the notion was that we were, you know, when the company first started, it was, you know, very much sort of a, a, a place for people to solve a very common large problem, which was, you know, access to information around technology, right? And it sort of very clearly built, became into the world's largest knowledge base over a decade or so. Uh, but beyond that, what we really believe is that there's an element of taking all that knowledge and really driving a sense of learning for technologists and developers. And that's really where we're going. You know, we want to be the destination for technologists and developers, whether they are current technology and developers or the next generation of technology and developers. And that's our vision for our company. And that means being a lot more open about uh, opening the aperture, so to speak, to onboard uh, folks, uh, you know, very young folks even, if you're from all around the world to sort of be able to leverage the platform to start early, to start building technology applications, on-ramping very rapidly, learning continuously because, you know, 70% uh, of developers are learning, you know, a new language every every year, right? And, and everybody's sort of learning online. So our goal is to make sure that learning is a core theme in how we approach our company in the context of all our products, whether that's our public platform, whether that is through Stack Overflow for Teams, which is obviously through knowledge sharing uh, and breaking down silos within companies, promoting ongoing learning uh, from each other within, within organizations. And then of course, through our employee branding product to help companies engage with technologists so that you know these technologists are learning which companies are hiring so they can go and uh, go and apply for them. And then through our advertising products, especially through something like our collectives product, connecting companies and developers and technologists a lot more closely together so they have community curated content that's relevant for a very specific topic. Like let's say it's Google Cloud, one of our collectives. And the community can actually very neatly be able to engage with product folks at Google Cloud, get endorsed for answers that they have on, on questions that they've got and really be recognized as the world's best Google Cloud uh, developer as, a, as an example, right? But within that sub-community. So, our job is to make sure we promote the sense of learning and learning starts with a question, as we like to say, and we are sort of the workflow folks in that we are enabling just-in-time learning where people truly have an issue and they are stuck and they want to get unstuck through Stack Overflow. I want to come back to that because that is a big vision and there's a lot of pieces to it. And But I want to stay on what I call the decoder questions for just a minute here. Uh, how many people work at Stack Overflow? Uh, we're approaching about 525 or so, uh, and that team is, uh, we're headquartered in New York, our European headquarters is in London, and then we have folks literally all around the world in you know every possible country you can imagine. You said that Stack Overflow doubled its headcount earlier this year, so you're up to 525. Uh, primarily, it sounds like because big tech has slowed hiring, so there's a lot of talent out there. How have you decided where to put those additional folks? We're very much in an investment cycle, and you mentioned earlier on that uh, you know we were acquired by Process last year. 
uh, a phenomenal partner and uh, investor uh, with a very long-term sort of view. And we really believe that we're only scratching the surface of what's possible uh, in terms of our impact in the world and so on. And we've got obviously a phenomenal foundation over the past decade. The folks that we're hiring from all, you know, all sorts of great companies who are approaching us because they're hearing about our growth story and how we are uh, really building a, a great uh, public platform and community set of products as well as our SaaS business, uh, those folks are coming into effectively our R&D organization, product engineering uh, heavily because we're making some fairly large investments there to modernize our platform to really sort of make sure we respond to community feedback on uh, the tooling that they need to even uh, take this up a few notches. And to also, of course, invest in our SaaS business and to really listen to users and customers and their feedback and to be truly product-led in our approach. And so that includes not only R&D resources, but of course, go-to-market resources all around the world. So we are hiring account executives in Europe, in Asia, PAC now, of course, in the US, very heavily across all segments. And then, you know, of course, with that comes customer success and marketing resources as well. So that is, uh, you know, it's literally across go-to-market and Product engineering or R and D, which is uh, you know the core parts of uh, companies. So is it an even split? So you know, doubling to five hundred plus—that's 275 people. Is that an even split of engineering and salespeople, or is it mostly salespeople? It's slightly more on the R and D side because we wanted to make sure that we double down on technology investment during this phase when we were in this investment cycle to build sort of the next generation of products. But it's right over 50%. So, you know, call it, you know, 55, 45 between R&D and go-to-market. And then at the company itself, is it that the same ratio, mostly engineers, then sales? How's the company itself structured? Yeah, I would say it's very similarly. I think our engineering organization is our second largest organization. Uh, of course, you have the entire product design, our community organization. Uh, don't forget that we have another element uh, in our company that engages directly with our 100 million monthly visitors. So that's an entirely new team that most companies just don't even have, right? And then, oh, don't worry. We're going to get to yeah, okay. Almost all the rest of my questions were at that team. Okay, wonderful. And then, of yeah. course, the, the go-to-market team, which is uh, obviously the largest team because you've got, obviously, sales folks of multiple kinds for all our products that I've described, and also customer success folks and, and all the, the supporting uh, cast around that. So that's the order. And then how is it structured? Who reports to you? What are the divisions? How does that work? Yeah, so I've had the you know, pleasure of uh, building what I believe to be a very, very strong team over the past three years. Uh, you know, I sort of built out effectively a new leadership team after I joined, which was interesting to doing it. You know, 85% of my tenure as the CEO of this company has been 100% remote, right? Because I joined mm -hmm. in late 2019 and the pandemic hit in 2020. Uh, so the leaders that report to me, are, you know, of course, the, the chief product officer, the chief revenue officer, the chief technology officer, the CFO, the chief people officer, the chief legal officer, and the chief marketing officer. So those are the folks who all the functions that you can imagine are uh, reporting to me. And, you know, all of them have some amazing backgrounds. They're great leaders, very inspirational folks, and, and have really sort of worked hard to build a stack into, you know, where we are today. So really, really happy about that. You have been at a variety of companies and a variety of roles over time. Stack Overflow, you've been the CEO for three years. This is the decoder question. How do you make decisions? What's your process? My process is just as my own style. I am very accessible as a leader. I'm very much on the front line, so to speak, constantly talking to our stackers and employees, constantly talking to customers on a literally on a daily and weekly basis. That gives me a lot of context and confidence that I know what's happening on the ground 
to be able to say, you know what, I have the ability to actually judge whether or not, you know, we need to go down path A or path B. When I make decisions, I'm constantly listening not only to uh, my own leadership team, who, you know, which is also doing very similar things by engaging with their people, talking to customers, talking to stackers, but I'm also doing tons of skip levels, et cetera, so that I don't sort of get too far away from the real sort of issues, so to speak, right? Oftentimes when you grow very large, uh, you, you sort of have a tendency to rely on the layers in between. So with that context and ultimately empowering my leaders to have a voice, uh, an equivalent voice, so that they can actually surface the key issues that they believe who you know, are sort of causing us to move, move faster or grow faster. Uh, there's a very deliberate effort that I conduct every quarter. We do a quarterly offsite. We you know, ask them very specific questions, you know, what's working, what's not working, what have we learned? You know, how do we hit our, you know, our overall objective for the year and what's preventing us and, uh, and what are the biggest challenges we're going to face? Like those questions ultimately surface very common themes, which, you know, none of those should be entirely surprising to me because if I've done sort of the diligence uh, working, uh, you know, very closely with folks on the ground, that should give me confidence to be able to say, okay, this is the right decision. So ultimately it's trusting the people, it's extending quote unquote smart trust to my leaders so that ultimately they have to bring up the issues that they believe will, will be able to we need to go solve, but also having the context from my own vantage point to be able to discern what the right path is. Let's put that into context for a big decision. You became the CEO, you sold the company. How did you decide to sell the company? It was interesting when I joined the company, we were really sort of accelerating our SaaS business in, in both in 2019, 2020. We pivoted away from that old talent job listings business that I mentioned uh, as we actually closed that business, one, one of my you know, probably tougher decisions in the company that I made. But then the team's business really accelerated. And that business now, like I said, has got you know every possible bank on the platform, every tech company that you can imagine, big retail companies, Microsoft, of course, you name it, right? And all these 15,000 organizations, that momentum attracted a lot of attention. So we got a lot of inbounds from folks in the first, uh, call it two years, where people were saying, hey, we're hearing about you from uh, companies that we work with. We'd love to sort of figure out how we can invest in you and so on. So we actually did a Series E investment in the in the middle of the pandemic, you know, which was done all online, hundreds of uh, Zoom calls and so on. And then as it progressed and we continued to accelerate our team's business and the message continued to resonate across, uh, across you know, the kind of the, the universe of uh, investors and so on, we had uh, people that approached us uh, as we were evaluating what it meant for us to be a public company in, call it, 18 to 24 months. So we went down that path of saying, well, what does it mean for us to go public in the next couple of years? And we put, put together a plan, which I obviously shared with the board and obviously in collaboration with my team. And while that was happening, other folks sort of came along and said, listen, what if you had the option to do that, but also spend some time in the context of a private company to continue to accelerate even at a grander scale, because we had our investors were with us for over a decade, right? So we had everybody from Union Square Ventures, Spark and Andreessen and, you know, Index Ventures and so on. Uh, and then most recently, GIC and Silver Lake Waterman, the pre-IPO fund of Silver Lake. So all those folks were in our investor base, and we had a very unique opportunity with Process where they gives us a ton of optionality. We can still go public as a company if we want to, or we can continue to stay private if you want to. They're phenomenal investors in companies like Tencent, a huge company as you've seen. So it made a lot of sense for us to continue to grow rapidly, drive that investment cycle that I'd explained earlier, and have the ability to mature as a company as we pursue you know, becoming a bigger company and potentially going public. Should we think about this like a private equity deal? It kind of sounds like the shape of one, like big company comes in, they take over, they cash out all the investors out, and then you can either go public or keep growing. 
it's pretty close to private equity. The only difference being, of course, there are different kinds of private equity firms with different philosophies. I would characterize them as really a great blend of being investors and operators. You know, they're active on both dimensions and investors because they're very, very smart about how they think long-term-ish and they're huge uh, fans of the community. They're huge fans of the things like ed tech, which we, uh, you know, we're obviously somewhat related to learning and education technology as part of what we do. But they also are very shrewd operators in that they have a lot of good pattern recognition with companies because a lot of them are people who have operated companies who have been in, in larger companies who have worked in larger companies. So they're not just totally, completely just taking a financial lens to the to the conversation. So I, I appreciate both elements of that. So different from traditional private equity from that in that dimension. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the people who moderate Stack Overflow. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health. And whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. All right. I think I have an understanding of the business, how you got to where you are, how you make decisions. Let's get down on the ground. Stack Overflow for most people, again, expressed as a community-based discussion forum where you ask questions and get answers. That's very simple. The reality of any social software at scale, and you have 100 million people at scale, is that those conversations are very contentious. Moderation challenges are everywhere. And communities go through fallow periods, vibrant periods, 
It's a community that you have to manage. You said you set up a team to manage that community. Talk to me about that team and why you set up that team. Yeah, I mean, the heart of the company is uh, it's the community, right? So it, we would not be here if it were not for the community that we served. And that is, you know, by far the, the biggest reason why I joined the company, the impact that we make around the world, uh, and by far the reason why most people join Stack Overflow to work for us, uh, because it is truly once in a lifetime opportunity to serve that many people in a positive way. So with that opportunity comes a lot, obviously a lot of responsibility and complexity to get that right. And you know, for the great thing that we have going at Stack Overflow is that we are a very objective place relative to other social media sites, which are a lot more subjective. You know, people have a lot of opinions about various subjects, whereas here there's, you know, typically sort of a, a right answer and a wrong answer to a technology question, right? There may be I two answers. I don't know that that's 100% true. Do you, are you putting a stake in the ground and there's a right answer and a wrong answer to technology questions? There could be different ways of solving the problem, but certainly mm -hmm. I think it's much more, it's on a relative scale is really what I'm pointing out, you know. Sure. You, okay. I think there's, right. there's, no, there's not a right answer and a wrong answer in politics. Correct. But on Stack Overflow, when you're talking about Google Cloud services, there's a generally right way and a generally wrong way. That is exactly right. And you're saying on the spectrum, you're closer to objectivity. That is correct. And I just think that now I'm not I'm not saying we're not uh, exposed to some of the sort of the things that plague large community websites, which I'll get to here in a second. But I would just say mm -hmm. that uh, with objectivity comes this level of like, okay, you know, the, to set that framework up, and again, the brilliance of our founders back in 2008, they set up a rule set which actually established things like, hey, you, this is the way in which you ask a great question, right? And in fact, my own experience on Stack Overflow when I first joined was actually a fairly harsh one. When I asked a question, I got slapped on the wrist for asking a question that was, you know, not perfectly worded. That was like a realization for me saying that I'm not a novice user. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fairly, you know, I, I learned to build software as a 12-year-old when my dad got me a computer, uh, you know, from Hong Kong, and that's when I started writing code, right? So in that context, it was sort of a jarring experience, but I realized that that was the trade-off that the founders had made to establish this as the very sort of objective place. Now, to get to your point around the team, there's a very, very specific team, both in terms of community moderation. We have obviously, in addition to that, a product team that focuses purely on community products. So what those folks do is literally build the tools and the automation and to make sure that the experience on the public platform is really, really great. So a lot of things we're doing on the subject are things like, how do we make sure that our platforms are a lot more inclusive and welcoming for the next generation of diverse technologists so from all around the world so as an example we are rolling out something called staging ground which is almost the equivalent of a shallow pool in a swimming pool where people get the opportunity not to get slapped in the wrist like i did <laughs> a few years ago to ask the questions make the mistakes get friendly feedback and then be able to go into the deep end of the pool within stack overflow with the 15 million questions and answers and then go and ask your first question really like practice stack overflow exactly right that's one that's one example of what we're doing with our inclusive approach. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is something called the unfriendly robot, which is literally ML technology that skims all the content on Stack Overflow to look for any comments that may be untoward or inappropriate based on, you know, just could, it may have been, the intention may have been to get it right, but uh, to get the answer right or whatnot, but it came across as fairly harsh. But that unfriendly robot goes and skims based on patterns and flags that to both the moderator community as well as the company so that we can actually go and sort of remediate those and, and sort of make sure people are appropriately, appropriately engaging on the platform. So those are two specific examples where we're doing that. And of course, within our Stack Overflow for Teams product, 
we have completely even removed the ability for people to even download answers as an example, <laughs> right? Because with your colleagues within your company, uh, you know, it's more likely that you just, you know, don't want, you don't want to download, download your colleagues. It's a lot easier to do that on the public internet when you have hundreds of millions of people all around the world. But within your teammates, we wanted to make it even more sort of friendly. And so we basically only included upvotes. So those are, you know, very specific examples where we have really tried to make sure that Stack is a lot more of an inclusive place. It is a lot more welcoming of the next generation of technologists and people feel comfortable to engage on it. What are the metrics you use to track that? What's the graph that goes up or down that tells you whether things are a success in that, in that area? Specifically, we look um, every month, we look at, uh, of course, the community satisfaction score. So we look at that and we that survey goes out to a lot of people in the community. That's one metric we look at. Uh, thankfully, it's in a, in a very good spot at the moment, thanks to our collective efforts. In addition, we also look at moderator satisfaction scores, which is a really, really strong proxy for us for the health of the community. Because if the moderators who are sort of these few hundred people that are really making sure that the community health is really, really solid, if they feel like they're being empowered with the tools that they need to succeed and to be able to serve the broader community, then we know we're sort of on the right track. So even that is in a generally very good spot. And we are, you know, as I said, the tech technology investment cycle is to invest into the community to make sure they have the right tools to be able to do their work even, even more efficiently. How are those two metrics proxies for this is a welcoming place and we're initiating the next generation of technology leaders in an inclusive way? Because you can build a very small, closed, homogenous community where everyone's really happy. It's not telling you whether you're adding people or you're welcoming to new people. Uh, great question. So we obviously, we want to make sure that people that are responding to our surveys, et cetera, are coming from a true cross-sectional group of people that represent truly what the industry should be like relative to the world, right? So even our beyond those two surveys, you know, we conduct obviously our Stack Overflow developer survey that goes out to literally the entire millions of people on our public platform. Typically about 100,000 people respond to that survey every year. And we have in a very crystal clear fashion, we ask these questions specifically on things like diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging to make sure that we have true representation on our community and people are using our public platform relative to the world. And uh, of course, you know, we, we have a ton of work to do as it both in terms of our public platform, as well as I would say the technology industry at large uh, to increase representation uh, across multiple dimensions of anything about diversity. And that I think is an ongoing effort by us to, uh, to make sure that we are constantly focused on that subject. And we have several initiatives that, uh, that are driving that, but in general, we are looking at both demographic data when people respond to our surveys, in addition to, of course, looking at just the score at a holistic level. What are the demographics of the user base now? I would say the one that stands out the most is probably the gender distribution between males and females on Stack Overflow and generally in the technology industry, I think is, you know, is, is just low. I think it's relative to what it should be, relative to what it represents. And sometimes it, there's some survey data is interesting. You know, the, the number of people who actually feel comfortable responding to the surveys and also the number of people and the types of folks who actually contribute and ask questions. There are a lot of people who lurk on Stack Overflow, get the answers, but are not active contributors, right? So are all our efforts, as I was mentioning earlier on, in the spirit of making sure people feel like very, very comfortable engaging in the community. And that takes some work for sure. So I would say that one, Nile, in particular, is, is one that we're focused on, specifically the mix between uh, males and females uh, on Stack Overflow. You came into the CEO role during a somewhat contentious time for this community. It seemed like that user base itself needed a culture change, not just the company at large. There was a code of conduct that was announced about a year before you became CEO. 
Famously, it included the line, be nice. It seems like you've left a lot of that behind. You've imposed this new community team. You've made a lot of changes. When you think about the goals you have for the community, my thesis for all large community sites is that in order to grow, you have to moderate more, right? You, you, as you add more and more people, scale demands more and more content moderation. Is that what you're seeing? It, it kind of sounds like that's what you're having to do in various ways as well. Yeah, you mentioned a few things that I think are important. First thing is that we need to have the right people with the right experience to be able to do this work. So, you know, firstly, we brought on board uh, a really talented chief partner and community officer who helped us sort of think through sort of the framework for how do we think about the community in the context of our products? How do we make sure that there is a unified approach to when we engage with the community? It's not, you know, we have a public resource on one side and we have a big bad business on the other side, right? It's Mm -hmm. all in the spirit of the same user. The the user is who? It's the user, it's the developer, it's the technologist. Everything that we do should be in the spirit of serving that development technologist and communicating that vision to those users and technologists was sort of one of the the most important things to disarm people to say that, listen, uh, there's not sort of a nefarious agenda focused on this, right? This is all about serving you. Then it's about bringing on, not only at that level, but bringing on folks who in that community team that we have built out very meaningfully is that we brought in a very talented person, another VP of community who we appointed. And, you know, that person joins us from another very leading site that you know of is sort of not exactly what we do, but very similar to what we do. And that's been a, a huge boost because, again, lessons learned from other companies that have been sort of in the deep end of the ocean around this sort of stuff has been has been great to sort of make sure that we don't make the same mistakes over time. So we spent, I would say, 2020 and a good chunk of 2021 really stabilizing the community sentiment. And to your point, when I joined the company, there was a lot of vocal feedback and, you know, I walked into yeah. what I would say a fairly... Moderators were quitting. Moderators were quitting and it was sort of, it's a very controversial time. But through this articulation of the vision and rebuilding trust in many ways to say, like, this is what our true intention is by appointing the right people to fulfill promises that we, we started making, that has taken a while. And I, my, my belief is that based on the scores that we, that we have looked at, based on, you know, I'm constantly talking to communities, uh, members all the time, and of course, with our team, we have done that. And we, of course, we continue want to continue to focus on that. But we really now are in a phase where it's not only stabilizing, but we want to really delight our community. Right. So it's going from, you know, kind of a fairly noisy situation to stabilization to now delighting. So those are the sort of the three phases. And we're in the last phase of that, which is to say, how do we make sure that we give our community members all the things that they really need uh, to be able to really find this super useful, which is what has led us to our vision of making it the destination for both current and next generation of developers and technologists. So all the things that we want to build is in, the, in that spirit, you know, and we're going to go well beyond what the site has been over the past 14 years, a Q&A site, right? We want to be a lot more focused on, we're running all sorts of experiments, including things like ed tech content, as an example, through our some of our partner companies. If we are actually solving developer problems in the moment, can we not extend that? Can we not extend their learning even beyond that moment of, of answering a question? Can we provide them with an appropriate, let's say, as a, for example, a course from Udemy or Pluralsight, et cetera, to say, here, if you just looked up a question on Amazon Web Services Lambda, here is a advanced AWS serverless course that you can take right after you answer that. So they, they meant to make a mental note because it's the best way for them to be prompted to learn when they're actually in the issue. So those are small examples in LA of saying that we are very much in the delight part of our journey with the community. And we really will be taking that up a few notches here. 
I feel obligated to say that Udemy, which you just mentioned, also uh, process has a big stake in Udemy. So it's a, it's all part of the same conglomerate. Let me ask you just like a philosophical question there. You said there's generally a right answer in technology problems. I think there are some people who would just disagree with you flat out. Maybe I'm not that person. Maybe I don't have the background to disagree with you flat out, but I know people who would flat out disagree with you on that point. What you're proposing is almost like a philosophy of engineering, right? You come and ask a question, and then Udemy teaches you something related to your question, and you kind of end up with one way of doing things because you're the biggest resource. Philosophically, is that the vision that people enter with questions and then they learn how to answer the questions in the deep end of Stack Overflow, which has a very rigid kind of etiquette. And then they get pushed into courses at partner companies that teach everyone how to do things the same way. Is that the vision is to sort of more standardize how things get built like that? It's a good question. So I want to make sure that I'm clear when I say the framework of right and wrong. I'm talking about it super macro level, right? Relative to, again, opinion-based social media sites. That's, what I, that's the point that I was making earlier sure. on. And I, I want to make sure that's not lost in... The spectrum is really the point I'm making. We're a lot more objective than we are subjective. That's the point. Now, with regards to a public platform, we're not trying to be very draconian delay around, hey, this is the right way to do it, and it's the only standard to do it. So I'll give you a very specific example. Every question, we have 50 million questions and answers. We have the ability for community users to sort their answers that they're receiving as part of their search results both in terms of the most voted answer. So let's say there was a question asked about JavaScript 10 years ago that somebody answered has been upvoted, let's say thousands of times. That can be the answer that they look at, or they can also sort it by what we call trending sort. So what that means is that it's the more recent, more modern way of solving the exact same problem. 10 years later, somebody came up with the answer and that's a lot more elegant of a solution than it was, let's say 10 years ago. So we have an entire effort focused on things like outdated answers to say that, hey, this answer may still be appropriate, but it's sort of stuck in circa, you know, 2010. But in 2022, you know, this answer is even more sort of elegant and you would solve the problem this way because, you know, people have sort of progressed and so on around uh, solving the problem. So in that context, there are obviously multiple ways to solve a technology problem, absolutely. And there's a better, more efficient way. And that's the human progress, right? That's why every year we see a new technology language, uh, a kind of a programming language come to the top of the list on our survey. So, you know, we have one day it's Rust, next day it's Svelte. If that didn't exist, like, what's the point, right? We want to continue to build on inefficiencies from prior abstractions of programming languages. You know, it could be a memory issue. It could be the elegance of writing code and how effective, you know, you know how you know how uh, pithy you can actually make that. So all those things are driving people to discover newer and better ways and and frameworks and scripting languages that sort of solve previous inefficiencies. So that is just technology progress. And so for us, we welcome that. We absolutely talk. That is sort of you know very much core to what we do is to encourage that development within within uh, the technology universe. So hopefully that answers your question. It does a little bit. I think what I'm interested in is as you add members to the Stack Overflow team, to the community team, to understand that there's a new, more modern way to do something in JavaScript requires you to understand it. It's a community built around very specialized pieces of knowledge. Do you have to hire in those specialized pieces of knowledge? It strikes me that the world's foremost AI expert probably wants to go be writing some AI code as opposed to moderating the AI code that gets posted to Stack Overflow. How do you juggle that? How do you bounce that? How do you make that sale? So I think there are three components, if you think about it, right? So one is the people at our company, that's Stack Overflow, the company. 
Then you've got the contributors on Stack Overflow, uh, who are the users and the consumers, both. That's you know the group of users. And then you have the moderators. Effectively, they're sort of in between the company and, and the community of consumers and contributors. Do you pay the moderators at all? We do not. We do not. Yeah. So they are, you know, it's completely, they're, uh, they're nominated, they're, vo- they're, they're voted members. And typically, you know, they, they're obviously volunteering to do the, do the role because they understand that ultimately this is going to be a huge public service in, in many ways to, to move the world forward. So the expertise on AI is, you know, it's less important for us to have a moderator that is the expert on AI, on the AI Stack Exchange site. I recently met with one of our most prolific Stack Overflow users, John Skeet, uh, and he's got a high, extremely high number of points. If you look him up, you know, he's in the top like, uh, you know, couple users. And somebody like him is taking his time out of his day to be able to contribute to this community because that's in the DNA of a developer. We've all been there at three o'clock in the morning trying to debug code, so we understand the frustration of doing that without any sort of peer help. And so the fact is that you've got these experts on Stack Overflow, the world's best AI developers on Stack Overflow, the world's best Google Cloud developer is on Stack Overflow. And they are the ones that are making sure that they are helping out their fellow developers and technologists based on their own learnings of struggling through using you know, whatever capability to build things. That's the mechanism. It's, it's less about us hiring the right people, uh, experts. We're not meant to be sort of a research house of people. It's all about the community. The scale that we get is because the experts in our community are able to help each other out because of that fundamental DNA trait that they have to help each other out. What is the incentive for the moderators to do all this work, to moderate, to deal with other people? That is very much a social job. It must be exhausting. What is the incentive if you don't pay for them? It's uh, quite intangible, but at the same time, it's very much it pulls on the heartstrings of who we are as, as people, right? It's it's around helping people. It's that emotional connection and the gratification that you get that you literally helped millions of people. We measure that and we tell users, this question that you answered has been accessed millions of times and it has solved millions of people's problems. That is irreplaceable. You know, you can you can pay somebody $20 for an answer, but that doesn't get you very much. I think it pollutes the environment by looking at it from a commercial lens. The point is that developers, just the, the DNA point I mentioned, plus the gratification that they get by helping people literally all around the world is the reward. It is the incentive. And they're getting recognized for it. They're getting recognized as the subject matter expert on the subject of whatever they're focused on, whether that's within the public platform or within Stack Overflow for teams within their company. An introverted engineer sitting in another part of the world <laughs> is answering all the JavaScript questions within this company. And that person was never known to be an expert on JavaScript until Stack Overflow for teams was able to give that person recognition because that's how they operate. They like to be behind the scenes helping people versus speaking up in meetings. So, you know, that I think is the biggest motivation, recognition, why people have got sort of interest and in, in, in sort of the energy to do this uh, throughout the year. That's the motivation to contribute. What is the motivation to moderate? It's, it's similar in that, you know, to keep the system going, you want to make sure that the algorithm slash the principles of the site are being adhered to because you don't want to make this sort of a wild, wild west. It has to work. The only way that the right answer, quote unquote, uh, despite the earlier conversation, is surfaced is that these principles need to be adhered to, that you know, you're not getting off-putting comments, people feel welcome, et cetera. And again, it's the incentive about, hey, you're representing this community of 100 million people 
to make sure that the system is propagating and moving forward and helping the next generation of developers sort of move forward and people are going solving their problems faster and faster and faster. And they're also the interface with companies, our company, I mean, to provide us with input and feedback on what we should be building for this next generation of the site. And from their standpoint, I think they have a phenomenally influential role, moderators, along with, of course, our meta community, which is uh, meta on Stack Overflow, is another really fantastic place for us to engage very directly with our power users, in addition to our moderators, to get a lot of feedback on a lot of things that we're building and considering building based on input that we're seeing from our surveys and so on. So those are the motivations. One of the things that I hear from the product people and executives at consumer social networks is that consumer behavior shifts on a dime and they have to invent new products to capture whatever sharing dynamic might exist today. So Instagram has to copy stories. Stories has to copy TikTok. Everyone has to copy Be Real tomorrow. And that is the dynamic of consumer social software. Mark Zuckerberg famously said, there's one sharing dynamic that takes over for a generation and we have to go buy that company. And that's why they bought Instagram. They were not able to buy TikTok. And I think they have to furiously compete with TikTok now. Stack Overflow is not that thing. I don't think Stack Overflow has stories. I don't think you're going to turn it into TikTok. Are you going to turn it into TikTok? No, definitely not. We're going to continue to stay on that objective end of the spectrum. Do you track the incentives to contribute and the incentives to moderate, and have they changed? Because it seems like even if the format isn't changing, right, it's still mostly text, the incentives and social dynamics of the community definitely change, especially as you scale, especially as you try to make it more diverse. There's obviously a lot of movements, uh, you know, these days around, if you think about even concepts like blockchain and you think about concepts like the quote unquote Web3 sort of uh, area, mm -hmm. a lot of that is based on trying to make sure that people get recognized for the contributions that they're making. So it could be in the context of a creative individual who's got, you know, a new song that they created. And of course, you know, we, we can talk all day about that subject. But the point is that obviously we're tracking all elements of recognition and what does what the next generation care about? What, how, what do they find valuable? Mm -hmm. We are absolutely doing that research. I think what is fundamental though, Nile, is the, the characteristics of this population. You, you said it really well up top. You know, this is a very specific group of people. Technologists and developers are just very a very special group. And what motivates them, what drives them, is exceptionally different from, I would say, just the general populace of people. And I think that's why the incentive systems is not sort of a one-size-fits-all where we would ever, you know, in a very sort of instinctual fashion, just sort of layer in some, some new sort of recognition system. It's just that what has been working, the reason it's been working, the network effects that have existed is because of all the things I've just mentioned to you uh, as part of the DNA and the fundamental inherent motivations of people in this community. So are we tracking it? Absolutely. Um, because, you know, that's just our job. But I would say, uh, we, you know, are we going to make any sort of fell swoop decisions? Uh, no, not only that, we will absolutely do a lot of research before we go down those paths. 100 million people all developing software, not a monolith. You brought up Web3, so I have to ask you about it. Web3 developers, evangelists, one kind of culture, people love it or they hate it. There does not seem to be a back and forth. I'm assuming Stack Overflow has crypto-related discussions and forums and questions and answers. How do you keep that apart? How do you make sure that that community is doing its work without the people dropping in to say they're all stupid and doing scams, right? Because you actually have, you don't have one community, you have thousands of communities. And that one in particular is contentious, right? It's controversial. How do you keep those things apart? How do you manage that? 
we have close to 170 websites. Beyond StackOverflow.com, we have all these Stack Exchange websites that include, in that particular topic, everything from Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cardano, and each of those have Stack Exchanges. There's a Solana one. Uh, all these sort of topics that have been sort of in the news most recently, uh, despite the, you know, what's happening, the crypto universe, the, sort of the, the boom and busts, et cetera, what is very evident from our data is that the number of questions, much like, by the way, cloud and machine learning, which have gone up by the way, 50% year over year over the past decade, uh, blockchain related questions and all these sort of related subjects have gone up 80% year over year over the past 10 years. So you're right in that there's a lot of content being generated on Stack Overflow on these subjects. But they're, again, very technology-focused subjects and questions. They're not opinions about whether we believe this is a, a trend or not, any of those sort of subjective conversations, which, <laughs> which belong on a social site or on TikTok or anywhere else that people are talking about things. This is how do you build an application using this new framework? And what is so good about the intersection is that the fundamental building blocks of, uh, call it a Web3 application, is very similar to the fundamental building blocks of a Web2 application. I'm talking about things like Python. I'm talking about Node.js. Mm -hmm. And those are all, uh, you know, th those, and you can see the data actually has, there's a correlation where we actually, we see the number of Python questions go up relative to the number of, for example, machine learning questions. And similarly with blockchain, there's a correlation. So that is how we stay quote unquote, out of the noisy conversation about, you know, a fairly sort of polarizing environment of people love it or people hate it. And, you know, we just sort of focus on the technology. And if people want to experiment, that's our job to enable them to experiment through common knowledge. And that's- Do you have to build different kinds of products for different communities? I just imagine the needs of the Web3 development community, the Solana development community is different than the needs of the, I don't know, Rails development community. Yes, in terms of at some level, that's true. But the abstraction at which we're, the, the level at which we're operating, which is to provide this, uh, you can call it what you will, a forum or a knowledge base, et cetera, the fundamental principles and the rule sets still apply across these. So we're not really sort of changing the way we do it. If anything, we've heard a little bit more about input from these newer Web3 sort of oriented communities saying they want to be able to engage even more on a real-time basis beyond the asynchronous type of way, right? So that's been an interesting feedback yeah. which we've taken. They all want discords. They want sort of more around those lines, of course. So, so that's a great, so that's an interesting new piece of input relative to pre sort of blockchain era, if you will. So that's, uh, you know, other than that, I would say, generally speaking, the principles apply across the board. As I talk to other executives at other community sites, Section 230 comes up over and over again, right? It is the the big looming dark cloud overall internet moderation, overall online speech, is politicians from both parties love to wield this threat of doing something with Section 230 to get the moderation they want. This affects every site with user-generated content. It affects our comment system. It affects all the way up to the scale of Facebook. It must affect Stack Overflow too. Is this something you think about? I, I think it's, it sort of depends on what element of that, right? So our, our community guidelines and our licensing basically govern most of what we're doing on the subject. So I think that with regards to making sure that there is no... Uh, some inappropriate content on our website. I mean, that part is, you know, the good news again is that we are on, again, the scale of being objective and subjective. Uh, we are in a place of objectivity. And then sort of the appropriateness of the content, et cetera, is moderated by the, the community principles and guidelines that we've got right, going but on. So, so 230 is the law that says you are not liable for what your users post on Stack Overflow. If you take 230 away and there is some liability for you for what Stack Overflow users are posting, 
that could be the end of the business, right? Because you would now would be liable for the code that gets posted to Stack Overflow. Is that something that your general counsel or your policy person has ever sat down and said, look, this law going away could potentially be the end of this business? I don't know if it's something that we sort of actively discuss as sort of like this existential threat that is to our business. Again, I think based on the intention of, you know, the, the users on our website, plus the content on our website. It's unlikely for us to have some nefarious activity on our website because this is about the fundamental, it's about fundamentals of Python, right? Like how nefarious can that get mm-hmm. is, is sort of the, the question. Pretty nefarious, I would think, right? If I use code that was posted to Stack Overflow and it has malware in it, I can sue the person who posted the code, but I can't sue you. Right. I think it's, a, it's something that we will watch I think it's something for us to just make sure that we're paying attention to. But at the same time, uh, it's given this nature of our website and what we do, you know, what the intention is behind it and our community guidelines, it's it's not something that we have sort of, we feel that is going to be uh, a big issue in the, in the near term. We need to take one more break, but when we come back, I have some questions about Google. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back. Let's talk about the content itself. We've talked a lot lot about moderating the community. What gets posted to Stack Overflow is often code. And there are studies saying, oh, there are mistakes in these code that ends up in shipping applications. Hey, be careful with Stack Overflow. You don't want to inherit a mistake that somebody made years ago and you're just pulling it down. Again, there are studies that say this happens all the time. Do you actually moderate the answers, the code that gets posted, or do you leave that totally to the community? 
it's almost entirely to the community. Of course, the company is constantly making sure that we've got, you know, the right, again, uh, frameworks, principles, uh, there's community commons licenses, those sort of things to make sure that there's, you know, transparency in what people are using, what they're posting, what they're signing up as, you know, for, in terms of their privacy, those sort of things. But no, we don't sit and scan people's, you know, code snippets that they're actually posting on the website. No, we don't do that. Do you think the stakes of that get higher with Web3, right? Web3, there, there are a lot of scams and a lot of weird exploits in Web3. Do you think the stakes go higher with the just literally the money that's flowing through the code that gets posted to Stack Overflow? Yeah, but it, I mean, that context, uh, yes, because you know people have a uh, lot to lose in that scenario if they're leveraging something that has uh, some nefarious uh, behavior. But again, the power of the community, I think, is, uh, and you've seen examples of the past 18 months, where you know people have been completely smoked out in those scenarios where you know and again that's the power of the group right to make sure that that's not uh, people don't take advantage of the situation and then in terms of growth right you've talked about growing you've talked about the SaaS business growing the most basic way to think about stack overflow is you ask a question you get an answer and it works i mean that's why the products are successful the communities are providing answers most people ask questions to google and obviously Google is a client of yours. You have Google-related uh, forums. Is Google, do they take search results away from you? Do you think of them as a gatekeeper, as a partner? It just seems like any place where there are answers to questions is a place that Google might expand its remit to cover. You know, we, we absolutely, you know, we think about Google as like the fundamental way in which people access Stack Overflow. You know, I think over 90% of our usage, maybe slightly even more, comes from somebody going to Google, asking a question, and then the first answer is typically Stack Overflow because of the community voted answer and they show up on our website versus people doing it within Stack Overflow's own search or using, and now with Stack Overflow for Teams, they are leveraging asking a question just within Slack or Microsoft Teams and the answer is going to pop up from Stack Overflow for Teams because it's integrated with uh, Stack Overflow for Teams. So Stack Overflow isn't the primary point of contact. You either ask Google or you ask some other piece of workplace software. That's correct. Our job is to make sure that we are the system of knowledge, so to speak, Malay. And the system of engagement can be whatever their workflow is, right? So we're, mm -hmm. we know that the system of engagement for people generally is they're in their chat ops software like Slack or Microsoft Teams, or they're going to Google and doing that. But all sort of arrows point back to Stack Overflow as, the, as a source of knowledge. And that's what we, we want to make sure that the information's accurate. How they get to it is sort of, we just want to be in the flow of their work. That's why we've sort of not really uh, pushed back on that or sort of try to change that workflow in any ways. But we are working on things like how do we make that even more simpler? How do we remove steps from that to make sure that people are have even more instant access to the information at the right place at the right time. And that's why with Stack Overflow for Teams, a lot of our experimentation is around that subject, which is why it integrates with GitHub, it integrates with Jira, it integrates with obviously team, Microsoft Teams and Slack and with Okta and all these other things, and there's a lot more coming. Um, is that the safer side of your business, the enterprise side, the SaaS business? Because any business, and I will freely admit that this is potentially our business too, any business where all the users come to you from Google is a business that is at the mercy of Google. Right. So the, it sounds like the SaaS business, the enterprise business, where you are integrated into people's workflows at work, you have stable revenue, all that stuff is safer than the sort of public Google facing business. Is that how you think about it? Or is you just don't think Google's going to make a Stack Overflow clone and send all the traffic to that? 
I'm, I'm, I can't comment on Google's plans, but I would just say that for us, I don't know if it's safer. I would say it's more that we want to capture all elements of people's workflows so that they are getting access to Stack Overflow information when they when they access it, when they want to access it, right? So if they're a student, you know, in university, and we've just kicked off a very large student ambassador program at 250 campuses, uh, you know, where we're getting all this feedback from young, young, young folks. Uh, is that that's how they access it, right? They are going to Google and that's how they, they Google a question and that's how they get it. So we want to be there when they do that. When they graduate from college and they go into companies, they we want to make sure they leverage Stack Overflow for teams. And even if they go to Google, most of our customers have got now people redirecting their Google searches through a proxy redirect back to Stack Overflow for teams within their companies. So, and then within that, people are enabling a private and public a version of Stack Overflow within their company. So they have a, the read-only public version up top and the private Stack Overflow teams at the bottom. So again, it's about the workflow and not disrupting the workflow. It's, it's mostly how companies obviously have that uh, within their organizations and outside. If people use Google, they use Google. We want to be wherever people are, basically, to give them information. All right, I got to ask one last question. It's a big thing question. You have access to all the data. You see where all the, all the heat is. What is the next technology that's set to explode based on what you're seeing on Stack Overflow? That's a loaded question. I would say the you know every year we see the uh, you know the evolution of technologies, and I would have said if you'd asked me this question about a year ago, the proliferation of Web three technologies on our website was very very high. It's continues to be high, by the way. That really stopped, and so I would say the number of requests coming in for new Stack exchanges to be opened up on Stack Overflow were very heavily focused on. Web3 in the past couple of years. Uh, so, you know, we, we saw a lot of proposals. But in general, programming languages, it's one of those things where we start out with binary code, you know, with zeros and one assembly code, and it basically has been abstracting ever since over the multiple years, you know, decades. And every year, there is some, as I was mentioning earlier on, there's like a, there's a, there's something that is being compensated for. There's a memory issue or there's elegance or something else. And each of these languages are building on each other with higher and higher levels of abstraction, uh, which is why, you know, where we are now is that we are getting sort of much closer to really sort of uh, providing people with a lot of sort of elegant ways to solve problems while writing code all the way even to things like no-code and low-code, right, where you actually see it like super easy for people to sort of be able to sort of uh, leverage uh, coding in general. So I, I don't want to provide a specific answer. I'm just saying that every year, there's absolutely a new sort of leader that sort of is making up for the last, uh, the last sort of year's sort of um, deficiencies, so to speak. All right, last question. This comes from our own engineers at Vox Media. What lessons have you learned about community building and inclusion that other people can use when they're developing communities like this so we don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, I think it's making sure that there's always a way to make sure that you're balanced and that the world is not sort of binary, right? Even though I said, you know, there's a right answer and a wrong answer, I think that my own sort of leadership style is to be non-dualistic in approach, right? So just because we are an objective website, it doesn't mean that we cannot be inclusive of newer folks looking to ask questions with the right intention, right? They're just asking a question. They're trying to figure out how to, you know, uh, solve their problem. They may not know all the rules, et cetera. So there is a way. You have to just be deliberate about investing in discovering what the way is. And in our case, we've done things like staging ground. We've done things like the unfriendly robot, et cetera to augment that experience to make it possible for folks. So I think it's appropriate for us to end this discussion by saying, uh, in my own, my personal philosophy, is that there isn't actually just a, you know, an, you know, two extreme answers to a problem. The answer is typically always in between or in, in the middle, so to speak, right? And it's ironic, me 
mentioning this as the Stack Overflow CEO where everything is truly <laughs> right or wrong. The answer, especially as it relates to people and it relates to humans, is that there is typically no right or wrong answer. It's typically somewhere in between. So that's a, that's my approach. I think that if there's feedback coming from users that this is what they need specifically with things like diversity and inclusion, uh, we want to make sure that we are absolutely listening to that. We stay flexible with that and we invest in uh, the capabilities to make sure these folks feel a lot more welcome on platforms like ours. That's right. Prashant, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. We'll have to have you back soon. Yeah, thank you, Nile. Appreciate all your questions. Thanks again to Prashant Chandrasekhar for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.